If you will turn to Revelation chapter 20, we're going to look this evening at the first 10 verses on the millennial reign of Jesus, and I am taking a a direct approach in that I think this is not figurative in the scripture, but it is something that is still to come, and I'll talk about that through the message uh, this evening. And so far, by way of of review in our series, we've covered eternity past and uh, the heavens, uh, the concept of heaven in the Old Testament, the body and soul, uh, what happens to believers at death, characteristics of the present heaven, and then the return, resurrection, and judgment. We've looked at all of these primarily from the perspective of believers. Uh, We'll get to the other side uh, before we're done, but you'll remember that there are some non-negotiables that we identified as we think through this. Uh, The return of Jesus is a reality. Uh, The resurrection of unbelievers and believers is a reality, and the judgment of believers and unbelievers is a reality along with the eternal state to come. There is some variety of beliefs. Uh, There are some differences within that framework, but those are the things that we hold on to and believe are a must as we think about the events in the future. When we reference the return of Jesus, uh, we're reminding ourselves that Jesus came to the earth the first time as a baby in a manger, but he is going to return as the conquering king with the armies of heaven at his side we think about the resurrection of believers, that's going to include altogether those who came up out of the graves when Jesus was crucified, believers of all the ages upon the return of Jesus, ultimately those who are killed in the tribulation, as well as those who live and die in the millennium as believers who are not yet in their glorified bodies. As it concerns the judgment seat of Christ, We looked at how the judgment seat of Christ is not for the purpose of determining our salvation. Our salvation is secured through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So that means all of our sins are forgiven. We'll never be condemned for those. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But yet believers will be held accountable for how we've stewarded our lives how we've used the resources that God has entrusted to us, and we will be rewarded accordingly and given responsibility to continue serving God for eternity. Now, as we turn our focus to the second coming of Jesus, we recognize that that's going to take place at the end of the Great Tribulation, and it is going to be prior to the millennial reign of Jesus. I'm keeping this framework as straightforward as possible tonight. I don't want to get into a lot of the timing issues, but I want us to think specifically about the characteristics of life with God uh, and ruling and reigning with Jesus during that millennial period. And then the battle of Armageddon is going to take place upon the second coming of Christ. Uh, Armageddon, the word, only appears in Revelation 16 and verse 16, where it says, 
Then they gathered the kings together to that place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Uh, This refers to the kings who are going to be loyal to Antichrist, uh, gathering for that final assault. Armageddon means uh, Mount Megiddo, uh, and it's synonymous with that future battle when the allies and the armies of the Antichrist will be destroyed. All the nations, uh, in a sense, will gather together to fight against Christ. Uh, We don't have a specific location of where that's going to take place, but it's thought that it'll be around the plain of Megiddo, which is 60 miles to the north of Jerusalem. There have been more than 200 historic battles uh, that have been fought in that area. And if you've been there or maybe seen pictures of it, it's a vast span of land where something like that could very uh, likely take place. And at Armageddon, the cup that is filled with the wine of the fury of God's wrath, as Revelation 16 and verse 19 puts it, will be delivered and Christ will win a decisive victory. Now, when I use the term or the terminology, the millennial kingdom, I'm referencing what I believe is the 1,000-year reign of Jesus after the tribulation and after his second coming and the battle of Armageddon. You say, well, why is that significant to us? Because our hope is heaven, so why would we concern ourselves with it? Well, it's of great significance to us uh, because we will experience the millennium as believers in Christ and as we rule and reign with him in preparation for eternity. And it's important that we understand what it is and what the scripture has to say about it. So I'm going to begin reading in Revelation 20 in verse 1, and I'm going to go through verse 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that no one uh, would, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Verse 4, then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet are, 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, this thousand years that is referenced here several times, what will be some of the characteristics of that millennial period? First of all, I want to show you that the prophetic promises regarding Jesus will be fulfilled in the millennium. Now, obviously, many already have been, but there's still some that are yet to come, particularly as it relates to the final things. Psalm 110 in the first two verses says, This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule over your surrounding enemies. Now, we just celebrated the uh, Passion Week, and we thought about that triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And certainly, his entry into the city caused the people, the crowds, to consider his identity. You remember that was followed by the cleansing of the temple and that intensified the tension. They challenged Jesus and asked in Matthew 21 and verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And as things escalated, the religious leaders were intent on trapping Jesus in his teaching. And the debate culminated when Jesus posed a question. And I read from Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thy feet. And if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son. Jesus quoted from Psalm 110 to demonstrate his identity as the Messiah, which was in fact consistent with the Old Testament prophecy. Psalm 110 is quoted more than any other Old Testament passage, and it is distinctly a messianic psalm. God's kingdom would be established by his son. His son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be the perfect king who would establish the promised kingdom. And the theme of this psalm is the exaltation and the triumph of the Messiah. At his trial before the high priest, Jesus alluded again to Psalm 110 and to Daniel chapter 7 in verse 13 and 14. Let me read Daniel 7 in verse 13 and 14 to you. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one, like a son of man, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. Now listen to this. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now listen to Matthew 26 and verse 64. I say to all of you, from now on, 
you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now let's ask the question, when will the ultimate coronation of Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 and 14 take place? Well, I think in part it already has because Christ is exalted. He is at the right hand of the throne of God. He has finished his work of redemption. But there's also a future aspect of it. And one of the things that you'll note when you study prophecy is that there's often a present future aspect even within a single prophecy, meaning that it's been fulfilled in part, it's a reality, but it is still to come in its culmination. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21 says that God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So from a heavenly perspective, Jesus has been exalted, crowned, and is seated at God's right hand. He's already the ruler over the kings of the earth. In fact, Revelation leads in with that idea. Jesus will in the future be coronated visibly at his second coming. The scripture in the psalm references the Lord extending his dominion from Zion. Uh, Zion has heavenly and earthly dimensions in the scripture. I think there's some implication about the second coming of Christ and the kingdom that will extend from the heavenly realm to the earthly realm over the entire uh, world. I think it could also be viewed in light of what will take place at the battle of Armageddon. I think there's a priestly role for Jesus as well, where Hebrews chapter 7 is quoting from these verses. Uh, And then also, Jesus is going to strike down the kings in that day when he unleashes his anger, and he's going to judge the nations and crush the leaders. So the totality of the prophecy that is given in Psalm 110 in the messianic form describes Jesus' reign in what he's already accomplished, but yet what is still to come in the millennium or the millennial reign of Jesus. Second point I want you to note is that the prophetic promises regarding Israel will be fulfilled in the millennium. Now, throughout Israel's history, God has made prophetic promises to them. Promises that I believe in part are still to come. Now, obviously, uh, there are several views, uh, and this is a centerpiece, really, of understanding end times or eschatology as a whole, how you view Israel and where they fit and how that relates to the church and how that fits is important. And there are several views over the nature of the relationship between the church and Israel. Now, at the risk of oversimplification for the sake of time tonight, let me just highlight uh, some of those so that you uh, understand where I'm headed with this and you can go back and read more on your own if you like. There is something called replacement theology. Replacement theology is the view that the church has replaced Israel 
in that the many promises that were made to Israel in the Bible um, are fulfilled in the church and not in Israel proper. Then there's covenant theology, which uh, views the church more not as a replacement of Israel, but more in the sense of a fulfillment of the promises to Israel. And then uh, premillennialism at its core believes that the church is different and distinct from Israel, that God has not forgotten Israel and will one day fulfill his prophetic promises to them. Now, what were some of the prophetic promises that were made to Israel that were distinct among them? Well, in part, God promised that he was going to make Israel a great nation and that through that nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This was the Abrahamic covenant or promise that was made in Genesis 12, again in Genesis 15, and then reiterated again in Genesis 17 that God was going to make of them a great nation. Now, obviously, the purpose for them being a great nation primarily, uh, other than the fact that God just chose them as his own, was uh, that the Messiah would come through them. And that was why they were significant uh, in God's plan for the ages. And then the Jews are uh, spoken of as the chosen people of God. Uh, In that covenant, as well as uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, other places in the Old Testament, where God chose them not because they were more in number, or because they were deserving, or any of that, he just simply chose them by his sovereign will to accomplish his purposes through them. And salvation is of the Jews because Jesus, the Messiah, came through them. The Old and the New Testament, really the thread of the entire narrative of redemption, points back to Christ and his identity and how he came and what it was Uh, that he would accomplish. Now, what is in view for us, though, is the future blessing on Israel, whether or not there will be one, and how God's Word views that. I believe that the Bible speaks of a future blessing on Israel. Isaiah 27 and verse 6 says, In days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will bud and blossom, and fill all the world with fruit. Now, let me make a very important point here so you don't get bogged down in all this. No Jew will be saved by their heritage. No Jew will be saved by their lineage. They will only be saved through faith. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 28 and 29, it says, A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. So salvation is a work of the spirit in the heart of a person where their faith is in Jesus the Messiah. So being of Jewish descent does not make heaven your home. Being physically circumcised or some other measure of trying to obey the law, does not guarantee a place in the kingdom. Only the grace of God through faith in Christ can save a person. And that is abundantly clear from the scripture. Now, I do believe that there is going to be an in-gathering of Jewish believers in the future. 
I would point you to Romans chapter 11 uh, for that in part. I believe that they're going to be gathered in through faith in Christ where their eyes are opened and they believe in God and God credits that to them as righteousness. And further, I believe there are major portions of Scripture in the Old Testament, including the second half of Ezekiel, for example, which are incredibly difficult to reconcile if we simply conflate Israel and the church and don't believe that there's some prophetic plan to come in the future. And that's the position I'm taking. Again, I think we could disagree on some of the specifics of that, but what we cannot disagree on is the fact that nobody is saved apart from God's grace through faith, period. And we can also agree on the fact that God is going to fulfill every promise that he's ever made. Some of it's going to surprise us because it's going to be different than what we thought it was. But we're certain that God's going to finish what he started. And then the prophetic promises regarding creation will be fulfilled in the millennium. Jesus' sovereignty will extend to all of creation in the millennial period. The curse will be lifted. Animals will live in peace. Fields will be productive. And some of the language that we hear often uh, in hopes of peace to come uh, that are misguided and misplaced in the era that we live in actually come from the biblical language of the time to come. Let me give you an example of this. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6 through 9 says this, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So what we can expect in that thousand-year reign is that the world will live in peace. Now, evidently, even though there is peace in the world during that time and the worship of God will be the norm and Jesus will uh, reign from Jerusalem and Satan will be bound, there will be people in the millennium who do not choose to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. There will be those who enter the kingdom with glorified bodies and those with earthly bodies who live through the tribulation and on into the millennial kingdom. And at the end, there's going to be a rebellion. So the only way that there could be a rebellion again against Jesus and against the rule and reign of the Messiah is because there are people who are deceived, who are not following him by faith. During that thousand years, I believe also that there will be people who will be born, some of those children who will rebel against God. And when Satan is released, as Revelation 20 and verse 7 indicates, the nations are open to being deceived and following uh, the evil one into battle one last time against Jesus. 
And that's something that we can expect. And then finally, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one. Prophetic promises regarding believers will be fulfilled in the millennium. This is where it comes down to us and, and really how it's going to affect us. The prophecy of a coming kingdom on earth ruled by the Messiah is what we led in with tonight in the psalm and in other places in the Old Testament. This was revealed also to David specifically. Listen to what 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12 says. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish a kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, obviously, if you know a little bit about where this story goes, Solomon fulfilled the first part of it, but the throne of his kingdom was not established forever. That would only be through Christ. Now, listen to what the gospel of Luke chapter 1 in verse 31 and following says. The angel Gabriel said to Mary, you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Jesus will rule the kingdom. Another messianic psalm, Psalm 2 and verse 6, says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I would just encourage you, as a little bit of an aside to this, I would encourage you for two things as it relates to Bible study. One is, there's a lot about the Messiah in the Psalms. So when you're reading through the Psalms and you see those footnotes and you see other things that are references that might help you have cross-reference and have an understanding of what's being indicated, it can give you a tremendous amount of insight into Jesus the Messiah. I would also say that one of the things we probably don't do as well as we should at times, maybe because we're moving quickly reading the scripture or it's a familiar story, is when we're reading New Testament passages of scripture, there are repeated either direct references to Old Testament passages or allusions to those references in the Old Testament. And when we pick up on those, it takes us to a deeper level of meaning because we're not just reading the verses on the surface. We're seeing how all the pieces fit together and how the, the grand narrative of God's Word is telling the same story from the beginning to the end. The consequence of the curse of sin is going to be partially lifted during the millennium but it's not going to yet be lifted permanently. Isaiah 65 and verse 20 says, Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought of as a mere youth. He who fails uh, to, eat, to, to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. So we're given a little bit more insight into that millennial reign of those who are not yet in their glorified bodies, that they're going to have, an, once again, an extended period 
of life. Now, we see that in the opening chapters of Genesis in particular, that they had long lifespans. But then as a result of the fall, it became limited essentially to 70 years. And, uh, and I'll loosely translate it here, but anything beyond 70 is gravy, biblically. And yet it's going to be restored in the future to where there's going to be a longer lifespan again. And that's going to be in, an, in anticipation of the eternal state. Health and longevity will be common Uh, But as I mentioned, I do believe that there will be death because people who enter into the millennium uh, who aren't yet in a glorified body. Now, during that time frame, Satan will be thrown into the abyss, bound, and he will await his final rebellion and banishment to hell. We just read Revelation 20 in the first three verses. The abyss is referenced. The abyss is a holding place uh, for evil spirits. And during that time, that's going to include Satan. But they're awaiting the final uh, lake of fire, the eternal lake of fire, uh, due to their rebellion against God. So think about it this way. We're going to get into this more when we come in in the coming weeks. Just as the final heaven is not as it will be, according to the Bible, in the new heavens and the new earth. The final hell is not yet inhabited as it will be either. There is a place of suffering now. Uh, Jesus speaks about it, and we've looked at it in this example of the rich man and and Lazarus, Um, but it's not the final place of suffering. Uh, It, too, is in a state of what will be permanent uh, eventually. For us, what are we going to do and why does it matter? Well, we're going to rule and reign with Christ. The scripture says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Revelation 20 and verse 4. Now, who's going to be a part of that? Well, I think Old Testament saints will be. Uh, Daniel 7 and verse 27. I believe the apostles will be. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28. And then I think believers will, those who have followed Christ as we have. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with him. Uh, Jesus said to the churches of, the, uh, of Revelation, He who overcomes, to him I shall grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I overcome and overcame and sat with my father on his throne. And then Revelation 5 and verse 10 says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So we're going to be given responsibilities. We looked last week at uh, the judgment seat of Christ. We talked about how there are five specific crowns that are mentioned in the Scripture. Uh, We're going to limit ourselves to those because God's not given us any further insight into that. If there are more, that's up to Him. Uh, We're going to be entrusted with responsibility both during this period as well as in the eternal state, in the new heavens and the new earth. And what are we going to do? We're going to do whatever God tells us to do is what we're going to do. We're going to carry out the responsibilities that Jesus gives us. I think also a part of ruling will be um, believers who accepted Christ during the tribulation period and then either died a natural death or were martyred for their faith. 
I think these are going to be resurrected to reign with Christ. Uh, There's some reference to it here in Revelation 20. And in the millennial kingdom, those who have their eternal resurrected bodies will be ruling over people who still have earthly bodies. I think that's in the same pattern of the resurrected Jesus who was able to interact with the disciples who had not yet received any kind of body other than the one that they had been given through their birth. He ate with them. He, he talked with them. He spent time with them. And I think the, the illustration of Jesus post-resurrection, prior to his ascension, is an example of how there would be glorified people and non-glorified people who might exist in that millennial state. And then in the final rebellion, Satan will be released from the abyss. Revelation 20 and verse 7 and 8 mentions this. Then there's a reference to Gog and Magog. Um, I think generally that's a reference to the nations that are rebellious against God. And what God is going to do is he's going to send down fire from heaven and he's going to destroy his enemies. And Satan is going to be thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and with the false prophet. And that brings me to this point before I close. The millennial kingdom will come to an end. When's it going to come to an end? After the thousand years is complete. And the eternal state will be right there on the cusp of it all. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24 says, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Revelation 11 and verse 15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So remember, if we are faithful to God, he is going to entrust to us an honorable responsibility in his kingdom. And the connection is this. Each one of us will be given, according to the scripture, opportunities to serve the Lord in the future that are based on our faithfulness in serving him now. This is very important because many people think about their salvation only as being something that's going to happen in the by and by. And there's not a whole lot of practical application to it. And they don't understand the significance of why we would want to be faithful disciples. Number one, we want to be faithful disciples because God is worthy of it. And we should honor him because he's saved our wretched souls. That's number one. That ought to be the primary reason. We just want to worship him for what he's done. And then as a secondary benefit of that, we're going to be blessed and entrusted with responsibility eternally based on what we have made and done with what God has given us in the here and now. And I say this periodically, but I'm going to say it again. I don't know about you, but we're all going to have plenty to answer for when we get to the judgment seat of Christ. But I tell you what, I don't want to be there and just be flat ashamed because I have been self-centered in what God entrusted to me. I want to be able to use what the Lord has given me in humility and for him to be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we all ought to desire that. And here's the beauty of it. 
we all have the opportunity to do that. I don't care how far into your life you are. You, you might be in the fourth quarter. You might be in overtime. It, it really doesn't matter. You can say to the Lord with the time that you have left, Father, I want to be faithful so that when I'm in your presence, I'll not be ashamed. And I can honor you with my life because you've done so much for me. Let's bow our heads together as we pray.